Well, good morning, and uh, glad you are with us here uh, at Fellowship Bible Church. Those of you who are joining us online, uh, glad you are with us as well online. We uh, uh, continue to kind of grow our in-service uh, attendance, and uh, glad to do that. I want to thank and give a shout out to our ushers, they uh, and everybody else on our staff who are trying to do this uh, properly and and. Uh, you know, the social spacing. Fortunately, we have a, a facility that we can kind of put as uh, probably close to 300 some people, but um, uh, they're doing their best to try to keep things uh, kosher and so uh, follow their orders, I guess. Um, and um, anyway, glad, glad you're here uh, with us. Uh, a few years ago, Lisa and I were poking our heads around an old secondhand store uh, outside uh, near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And my eyes caught uh, a framed picture on the, on the floor. It was, uh, it was an etching of Westminster uh, Canterbury, and, or Westminster Abbey. And it just was intriguing. It was old. I thought, you know, that's going to look good in my office at home. And so I, a few bucks, I bought it. Took it home, stuck it on the wall. And it was actually signed, J. Alfred Brewer, a signed etching. That's really cool. Well, sometime later, I got curious, so I googled J. Alfred Brewer, and I found out he was a, a, a well-known um, uh, British artist. He was known for his etchings of uh, European cathedrals. This was a signed uh, etching of his, and guess what? It was worth like 10 times what I paid for it. I was possessing something that I really didn't know the value, uh, that I had the, the, this, this value of something on my wall. Now, if that's true in the physical realm, it's also true in our spiritual realm. We actually possess something as believers in Jesus Christ that we may not fully appreciate. I want to uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 6. And I should also, I guess, greet our F3 people downstairs this morning as well. Glad you could join us down there. Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're going to begin this morning delving into this very important section of Romans, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And it's in these chapters of Romans that we learn about the incredible wealth we possess as believers of Jesus Christ the incalculable riches that God has given us freely because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we know it? Do we understand the resources that we have? The Bible has a lot to tell us about who God is, but it also has a lot to tell us about who we are. When we trusted Christ as our personal Savior, it wasn't only that our sins were forgiven, that we lost something, we were forgiven our sins, and he cast them as far as the east is from the west. We also gained something. We also gained something. Becoming a Christian involves receiving something that we had never had before. It involves becoming something that we had never been before. And Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 unpacks that for us and helps us understand. What is it? What is that? possession that wealth that we as believers have that we may not understand fully that we have it well it's our new identity 
the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, we get a new, totally new identity in Christ. Now, you're in Romans chapter 6. Back up one chapter, chapter 5. I think we were in Romans chapter 5 back in May. Sometime there. Who's, who's lost track of time lately? Um, by the way, uh, you teachers and administrators, right? You go back tomorrow to school around here at least. Um, hate to remind you of that, but uh, we will be praying for you. This is a challenging time. Well, we were introduced to this concept in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is kind of a transitional chapter between 1 through 4, which chapters 1 through 4 had an emphasis on this key word, justification, which means to be declared right. Justification means that we, and a one-time act by God, declares us to be righteous. We who were sinners are declared righteous, and it has to do with our new position in Christ, how God views us, our new position in Christ. Justification frees us from the guilt of sin. It saves us, delivers us from the penalty of sin. We undeserving sinners are actually declared to be righteous, even though we're not, how and why? Well, chapters 1 through 4 explain that. Jesus died on the cross. He paid for our sins. And in this great exchange, he gives us his righteousness and takes our sin upon himself. He becomes sin for us and gives us his righteousness as a free gift so that God looks down upon undeserving sinners. He sees the righteousness of his son paid for by Jesus' own shed blood, and he says, I declare you to be right in my eyes, and we can forever, for eternity, live with him. That's justification, and that was Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. But Romans chapter 5 also begins to transition us into another concept that we call sanctification. Uh, literally, it just means to be set apart for holiness. Justification is that work that is ongoing. It's an ongoing process that after we're declared righteous by God in a one-time act, now it's the process that we become. He makes us righteous in our day in and day out practice. Sanctification frees us from sin's pollution on a daily basis. It frees us, it delivers us, it saves us from sin's power so that we can live the life that God has called us to live, sanctification. And in Romans chapter 5, uh, he talks about these things, or at least introduces it, and it gets developed in Romans 6, 7, and 8. In Romans chapter 5, we learn the principle of the two spheres, two spiritual realms. Everybody in this room, everybody watching online is in one of these two spheres, either in Adam or in Christ. We are either in Adam, and that was when we were born into this world, our first birth. Everybody's born in Adam, which means we are born in sin. It's spiritual death immediately. Words in chapter 5 of Romans like judgment and condemnation, reign of death, the reign of sin, all that defines the in Adam sphere. And everybody born in this world starts out in the in Adam sphere, spiritual sphere, spiritually dead. 
no spiritual life. But the other spiritual sphere is the in Christ. And Romans chapter 5 tells us that when a person trusts Christ as their Savior, they get transferred to that in Christ circle. And now there are words in Romans chapter 5 like abounding grace or to be justified and the reign of life and the reign of grace. In Adam, sin is king. In Christ, grace is king. And this is known as the principle of identification. Who are we identified with? Either in Adam or in Christ. And again, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous justification. We are placed in Christ. But now we have to live it out. And that's sanctification. And so Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 talks about practically um, the impact, the practical impact of living out a life of holiness. So let's take a look at the text. Romans chapter 6. These truths are are kind of spelled out for us in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now again, Paul has just said, man, we were sinners. Uh, We were dead and lost in sin. And then God's grace showed up. And someone might say, well then, say, if we continued in sin, doesn't that mean more grace? Shall we continue? Shall we remain, the word is? Shall we persist in sin? Now he's talking to Christians. He's writing to believers. Shall we continue and persist in sin? Shall we continue to dwell in it? Now, I need to get technical a little bit. um, And that's good. Doctrine and theology is good to know. And it's good to get technical on some of these things. Uh, You see, there's a little article in front of the word sin. We don't see it in our translations, but there's an article. So literally, it would be, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin? So it definitizes the sin. What, what, What sin? Now, unfortunately, if you've got an NIV translation, it it verbalizes it. Shall we continue, or shall we continue... um, uh, Shall we go on sinning? And it's really a noun. Shall we persist in the sin? Well, what is he talking about? What sin? Well, you've got to look back to the previous verse in verse 21 of chapter 5, where he says, So that as the sin reigned in death, so grace would reign. Sin, the reign of sin. In other words, king sin when we were in that in Adam circle, the spiritual sphere, being born in this world in sin, sin reigned. It was the dominating force. And so what Paul is asking this question as believers in Jesus Christ, should, are, are, are we going to continue? and Are we going to persist in letting sin be the king? The reign of sin? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin and the reign of sin so that grace may abound? And he says in verse 2, no, perish the thought, may it never be. And then he states this very powerful statement. How shall we, who have died to sin, still live in it? 
How shall we who have died to sin, to this king's sin, to his dominating power, we've died to it, how shall we who have died to it still live in it? Now one commentator, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, said this about that verse. He said, to understand this statement is to understand how to live a holy life. And because it is the key to living that holy life, I would go so far as to say that Romans 6, 2, the verse we just read, is the most important verse in the Bible for believers in the evangelical church today to understand. The most important verse in the Bible for evangelical Christians to understand. How shall we, who have died to sin, still live in it? Now, death means a radical separation. It's not just saying, how shall we who've kind of turned our back on sin or um, walked away from something, or it's even stronger than being divorced from something. How shall we who have died? He's talking about a radical separation from sin. And if that's true, how shall we have died to it, still persist in it, still live in it, still remain in it? Now, what's Paul suggesting here? You know, we're reading the words, inspired words on a text, on a page. If Paul were here, I wonder what his intonation, you know, how would he, how would uh, the tone of his voice be when he, when he would say, that? what's his intended meaning when he says, how shall we who have died to sins to live it? Is he saying, is he suggesting, now follow me, is he suggesting, hey, believer in Jesus Christ, you've been radically transformed. You're no longer in the in-Adam circle. You're in the in-Christ circle. King's sin no longer reigns. Grace is now the king. You've been transferred out of that. Therefore, is this what Paul is saying? Therefore, a genuine Christian cannot persist in sin and if you are that shows you never were a genuine christian in the beginning with because how shall we who have died to sin continue to persist in it a genuine born-again christian cannot persist in sin is that the intended meaning of paul i don't think so i think what paul is saying here is you're a believer in jesus christ you're no longer in the in-Adam circle. You're in the in-Christ circle. King sin no longer reigns. Grace reigns. You've been transferred out of that realm of dominating power. So therefore, how can someone who has died to sin continue to live in it? With the implication that many still do. You see, Paul is not talking about the impossibility of continuing sin he's talking about the absurdity of continuing sin how shall we have died to sin still live in it why, why would we do that paul is not saying a christian is incapable of continuing in sin and, and by the way we know that's true because you want to and we've said this many times here at fellowship bible church you want to know what a christian's capable of doing read everything in the new testament that tells us what not to do gives you a pretty good idea of what we're capable of doing. I don't think God would waste Holy Scripture 
telling us not to do something and persist in something if we were incapable of doing it. Of course a Christian is. That's Paul's concern. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? He said it is utter stupidity. It's totally inappropriate. It's unsuitable. It's unnecessary. It's an absurdity. Why would we do that? So oftentimes, we see Christians, however, struggling and continuing with old ways of thinking and old habits of life, struggling year after year. They persist in their old identity because I believe they haven't fully understood their new identity. They don't understand what has happened to them at the moment of faith when they were transferred to the in Christ circle. How shall we who have died to Christ or died to sin still live in it? Well, someone might say, well, you know, look, that's just the way I am. No, it's not. How shall you who have died to sin still live in it? You could say, well, you know, I, I can't help it. I, just... It was just the way I was raised. It just, you know, I can't help it. So, okay, so you had a, a rough upbringing. How, how, you're a believer now. How shall you who have died to sin persist in it? Yeah, but, you, you know, in the new modern scientific world, you know, I, I've, I've realized I have a genetic predisposition towards something. And Paul would say, so, <laughs> how, how sh shall we who have died to sin still persist in it? This is a statement of fact. Definitive work, you have died to sin. It's a complete absurdity that Christians still struggle with it. Now, the question is, okay, Keep working with me here, Paul. Uh, you know, I'm, I, okay, keep, keep helping me see this. And in verses 3, 4, and 5, he unpacks it. He explains this a little bit more. And he does it by using a key word that we all have used before, baptism. It's a Greek word, baptizo. So every time you say the word baptism, baptism, you're, you, you're speaking Greek. It's the word baptizo. Um, look at verse 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death so as that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life? Now that word baptism, baptizo, literally means uh, to be dipped into something, to be immersed into something something it was used of a say, say you had a piece of cloth a white cloth and you wanted to uh, um, dye it purple and so there's a solution of dye and you take the white cloth and you would immerse it in you would dip it into the dye and you'd pull it out and now that white cloth is purple it has been baptizo my it's been baptized into it in other words it's been 
immersed into to fully identify with what it was immersed into. To be baptized in that sense is to be fully identified with something. When Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he'd gathered his disciples together. And Acts chapter 1 says, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John used water. As believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to be used. Later, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now what is Paul saying here? What was Jesus suggesting? What he's saying here is that the moment we trust Christ as our personal Savior, we are taken out of the in-Adam circle, we are placed into the in-Christ circle by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are identified with Christ, totally new creation in Christ. We are placed in the body of Christ. We trust Christ as our Savior, something radically happens. We are not that old white cloth. We're, we're an old, dirty, smelly, filthy cloth that was immersed, as it were, into the blood of Christ. The moment of faith, through the Holy Spirit, we become new creations in Christ. That's called the baptism of the Spirit. And that's what Paul is talking about. I don't think he's focusing on water baptism in these passages. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, identified into Christ Jesus, have been identified, placed into his death, what was true of Jesus, is true, becomes true of us. We've been buried with him through baptism into death. When we are placed in the body of Christ, identified with Christ, we are in his death, his burial, and his resurrect, res, resurrection. So as Christ was raised from the dead, he says in verse 4, so we too might walk in newness of life. Our water baptism, by the way, is a picture of that inward reality. And so it really is a first step of discipleship. So Jesus said to his disciples, go and preach the gospel. And as the gospel is preached and people come to faith in Christ, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all the things I've, I've taught. So water baptism is something that every new believer should go through as that sacrament of baptism as a public display of the reality of the spirit baptism that has placed them into the body of Christ and identified them with Jesus, okay? So water baptism is very important. It's a first step of discipleship. It's our identification with Christ. We have been placed in Christ and so, we start out in the in-Adam circle, sphere, when we're born into this world, our first birth. But when we trust Him as our Savior, in that moment of faith, not when we walked the aisle, not when we said the prayer, not when we did anything, for by grace we are saved through faith, it's not of ourselves, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So there was nothing we did 
we heard the good news, full forgiveness in Christ. Eternal life is received by simply believing Jesus gives that eternal life freely. And the moment we trust him as our personal savior, we are baptized into Christ. We are placed in this new realm. We are identified with Christ. It's like, I, I, I'll take this, this um, little clicker thing and I'm going to stick it in this book and until I do, you know, I'm waving this thing around and I'm waving this thing around, you know, but if I place it in this book, now whatever I do, whatever happens to this book happens to that clicker, right? And the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, we are placed in Christ in that sphere of in Christ circle. We are united with Christ. And Paul adds this additional thought, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, it's a package deal. And so the last little phrase in verse 4 says, so that we can walk in newness of life. That's sanctification. That's living out the life that God has called us to live. It's experiencing all that Christ has secured for us when he died on the cross. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. But if we don't know and understand our true identity, we'll never live it out. Again, we've often said here, no person is going to live in a way that's inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. If we perceive ourselves as a no good, dirty, rotten sinner, I'm always struggling, and oh, that's just the way I am, and I'll never blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm, I'm heaven bound, but I'm sure not enjoying the trip. You know, people who look like they've been baptized in lemon juice. Like, come on. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you in abundance. But the believer never experiences that if we don't understand the reality of something that completely, radically transformed us the moment we trusted Christ as our personal Savior. We are new creations in Christ. You take a, ever had a dead battery? And you pull up another vehicle that has a good battery and it'll pop the hood and you put the battery cables from the good battery to the dead battery. Turn it on, what happens? The life of that battery goes over to the dead battery and it starts the car. I mean, we are in Adam when we're born in this world, dead in sin. But when we trust Christ as our personal Savior, we are placed in Him and His life now brings us to newness of life. It's a fact. We have died to sin. Why should we continue to live in it, he says. It's preposterous. And yet, sadly, Christians do. Born-again, heaven-bound Christians. They might have gotten saved one year and have just repeated that same year 40 times. And they've been a Christian for 40 years, but it was one year repeated 40 years. No, that's not what God has for us. We've died to sin. Why should we live in it? And so Paul will say things like in Galatians chapter 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, that old person in Adam. It's Christ who lives in me. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We no longer have to live the way we once did because we're not the same people we once were. A new identity is given to us. So what? Does, does that 
stir anything within us? Does it change anything in our life? Everybody born in this world is born with the image of God stamped within them. We are created in the image of God. That's why life is precious. Everybody is stamped with the image of God, but sin has effaced that. That image of God, it's, it's broken within the heart of humanity. Sin has messed everything up. That's why, folks, we have an identity crisis going on in this world since the beginning of time. People trying to find themselves, trying to, to find who, who am I? The world is struggling. It's obsessed with trying to understand and then celebrate the real me that can only be found in the real Jesus. We suffer from an identity crisis in this world. Yeah, okay, we grew up in a home where our parents were not perfect. Does anybody, did anybody have perfect parents? Okay, so they, they, they screwed us up a little bit. That's true for any one of us. Maybe some of you had a traumatic life-altering event. Maybe it was when you were four years old and you, and you were lost somewhere in the store. Your parents forgot you. Or maybe it was more serious, like a, something of, of an abuse, a, a, a sexual abuse, a traumatic experience in life. It's the brokenness in our soul. We're searching to try to put all the pieces inside. We're trying to find ourselves, find our true identity. Who am I? We grew up in a world right now and have been where that, that values looks and values intelligence and, and values a certain social economic status. Well, I'm not as pretty as others. I'm not as handsome as others. I'm, I'm not as athletic as them. I'm not as smart. I'm, I'm not as popular as and, and so we're seeking our, who am I? Where's my, where's my identity? What, what do I identify with? And so our world becomes obsessed with this sense of, who am I? What's my identity? Am I a, am I a ISTJ or a NF, NENFP, you know, the Myers-Briggs stuff? Well, who, who am I? Am I a high D or a low I in the disc you know, thing? I, am I phlegmatic or am I more of a sanguine? You know, the, the four temperaments. Who am I? What, what, what am I? Hey, what's your Enneagram? Have you done that one? Are you a type one, you know, perfectionistic? Or are you type seven, the enthusiast? What's your Enneagram? Who am I? All attempts to try to fit the pieces inside this conflicted, broken life because we're all born in the in Adam circle that's what sin does to us in our world today people are obsessed with their gender identity that's the alphabet soup thing you know lgbtq and everything else after who, who am i it's my sexual identity i am woman hear me roar okay i'm i'm a real man watch me cry you know real men do that no, you see, I'm a baby boomer. No, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. No, I'm a Gen Yer, you know, millennial. I'm, I'm a Gen Zer. Identity, where am I? Who am I? 
And I really believe that in the spiritual world in which we live in, because it is a spiritual realm, we live in the physical all around us, but there's the spiritual realm that encompasses it all. And the God of this world, Satan, is doing everything he can to mess up this sense of personal identity. And he does it even with believers in Jesus Christ so that we forget or fail to understand our true identity in Christ. The good news this morning is that if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been radically transformed and you are not the person you once were. Because when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were taken out of the in-Adam circle and brought into wholeness and completeness in Christ. And as we study Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, my prayer is that that is going to become clearer and more understandable to all of us. Because no person is ever going to live in a way that's inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. If Satan can keep us from understanding who we really are in Christ, he's got us. He'll neutralize us for any effective work and experience of abundant living that Jesus said he came to give us. I've said before, there's no such thing as a defeated Christian. But there sure are a lot of ignorant ones. Who are you, Christian? How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? For we have been placed in Christ. And at the moment of faith, it's as if when he died, we died. And as he was buried, we were buried. And when he was raised to newness of life, so were we. To experience all that he has planned for us. The abundant life. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our time of, of worship, I pray that you will take these, I, I think, deep, um, very important uh, theological truths, concepts, and, and through your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into what it means for us where we may have not fully understood who we are as blood-bought, redeemed, dead, buried, and alive children of God to walk in newness of life. That, Father, we don't have to struggle with those old sins, with the impact of, of imperfect parents or a traumatic situation or a world that is screaming, you're imperfect, you're not this, you're not right, or you have failed here. Not that, Father, we would get our identity from any of that. That we begin to understand 
as we shared a couple weeks ago, how perfectly loved we are by you. But even more than that, perfectly recreated in Christ. It's just learning, Father, how to live that out. Teach us, Father, as we continue in Romans 6, 7, and 8 in these weeks to come. I pray it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.